Rising Giants Network. It's July 2002. It's been months since anyone has seen or heard from Metallica frontman James Hetfield. He's been admitted to a rehab center and has kept a really low profile. Fans and the Metallica camp were really worried about James's lack of communication. Suddenly, on the 21st of July, a sign of life and hope. On that fateful day, fans flocked to music websites because James Hetfield had penned a handwritten letter and was posted all over the internet. It was heartfelt and gave the sense of a new James Hetfield being born. From the Rising Giants Network, I am Basil, and this is Legendary Rock Stories, Episode 5. The finale in our Metallica series. This is the return of the Kings. As fans huddled up around computer screens and their eyes glued to the words, they read the letter from their hero. The letter said, James here, alive and getting well. Recovery is the most difficult and challenging thing I have ever attempted, along with parenting. Also, the most grounding and gratifying gift I have ever received, also along with parenting. I have so much to say. I feel I've been away a lifetime, and in many ways I have. My rough road has become smoother reading the show of support from the friends I've met through Metallica. I've not seen nor felt such potent, real-heart, connecting words put together as these. Thank you, they move me deeply. My music and lyrics have always been a therapy for me. Without this God-given gift, I don't know where I'd be. Now I truly feel the impact and connection it's made with others. Struggle to struggle, pain to pain, human to human, not idle to fan, and not fan to idol. Clarity has put me in a humble and serene place to receive this connection in return and feel it helping me heal. Every breath I take becomes deeper and more confident of myself without my crutches. The lies I've filled my body and soul with are not needed anymore. They are not welcome. I choose to live and not just exist. I miss you all so much, and I am awaiting the time this deeper connection I feel to you will be in person. James Hetfield. Heartfelt words from the macho frontman of the heaviest band on earth. This gives fans and the band a sense of relief and confidence. Lars was concerned for his childhood friend and partner, but he also recognizes that there is no Metallica without having James Hetfield. Lars always viewed James not only as his friend and partner, but also as Metallica's secret weapon. This letter has given him, and the Metallica camp for that matter, a sense that James was coming back into the fold. And this was exciting. Prior to James Hetfield entering rehab and just after Jason Newsted had left the band, 
Metallica had been at an all-time low. During this time, the band decided to move forward with counselor Phil Tao to help them through this rough period. During the sessions with Phil, Metallica decided to start working on the first set of new songs since Reload. The writing process, however, was a stalemate. The band weren't inspired, James and Lars would bicker and fight, and the counseling sessions were just not getting anywhere. At this time, Metallica were also approached by film producers Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinofsky to produce a two-part feature film about the process of writing a new album. The goal of this film was to be released at a later stage to promote Metallica's upcoming album. But both filmmakers had no idea that what they were stepping into was going to be something completely out of the realm of expectations. Because what they were about to capture on film was going to be a key ingredient to the future of the next chapter of the Metallica story. So when James entered rehab, the filming continued. It continued with Lars Ulrich, Kirk Hammett and Bob Rock, as well as their relationship with counselor Phil Tao. During this time, the film would capture the dire state of the band and the road to recovery. Planning for the future, continuing therapy and attempting to get projects off the ground, it was an honest look at a band trying to pick itself up again. One of the key moments at that time was a meeting between Lars Ulrich and former Metallica guitarist and current Megadeth main man Dave Mustaine. It's been almost 20 years since Lars and Dave had any meaningful conversations. But when counselor Phil Towell encouraged Lars to face Dave Mustaine and resolve their past issues, it was something that had to be done. So in a hotel suite in downtown San Francisco, Lars meets Dave for the first time. Um, hey dude, it's been a while, huh? Yeah. You can say that again. Um, you've done pretty well for yourself, man. Man, can you just cut the shit? I watch people around the world say what a great guitar player Kirk is and what a piece of shit I am. And, uh, I got kicked out of Metallica, man. And I wasn't even good enough for you guys. And that I was a loser. And and I've had to deal with that for almost 20 years, Lars. And it's dreadful. It's a dreadful experience. It's been hard. Lars looks stunned. He had no idea Dave feels this way 20 years later. Even after he'd been widely successful with his band Megadeth. It's even considered as one of the most pioneering bands in heavy metal history. But Dave still felt that way. Dave continues. You think I'm happy being number two? No. Um, do I feel some guilt? Yeah, I do, Dave. But... But at the same time, it's difficult. It's difficult for me to comprehend that the only thing you see or you feel when you look back on the last 20 years is rooted in the Metallica thing. I mean, you've been quite successful with Megadeth. Both individuals spoke out and covered a wide range of topics in the presence of Phil Towel. And although James wasn't there, a seed was planted to start mending one of the first relationships the band had tarnished, their relationship to Dave Mustaine. The months passed, and finally, in December 2001, James Hetfield had exited rehab. It was time for James to reunite with his band members. The first meeting post-rehab, though, 
That was a weird one. That was a weird and strange one for all. On the one hand, James had been through a life-changing transformation that only he himself had experienced. On the other, the band members and management were expecting the same macho man singer of Metallica, but things were different. This version of James seemed a lot more open, happy, grounded, and emotionally expressive. It caught everyone off guard. At the first meeting with the guys at Metallica HQ in San Francisco, James opens up about his experience and about how he wants to work moving forward. First, he questions whether they should continue filming the documentary. He realized that even though he went to rehab, Lars, Kirk, and Bob continued filming. He wasn't very comfortable with this because he was still in recovery. But filmmakers Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinofsky showed James a 20-minute cut of what they filmed so far. He was stunned. It was almost like looking at a mirror and being uncomfortable with what he'd seen. For his recovery and for the betterment of the band, James and the guys decided that it was in the best interest of the band to move forward with filming and see where the experiment goes. And with that, and while filming this documentary, Metallica officially kicked off the process of writing their latest effort, Saint Anger. The writing process of Saint Anger was absolutely different from anything they've worked on before. For instance, in order to check their egos at the door, no member of Metallica was allowed to write any riff, drum beat, guitar lick, or even bass line outside of the studio. It had to be done in the studio with the presence of all members. This was going to be a collaborative effort. James would open up lyric opportunities to Lars and Kirk. Kirk would be open to guitar suggestions, and Lars would take feedback on his drumming. This was drastically different from their previous approach, where Lars and James would lead and everyone else would follow. This, of course, was not easy. The writing of Saint Anger was also accompanied by their counseling sessions with Phil Tao. This resulted in many unresolved issues to surface throughout the counseling process. In one example, as part of James Hetfield's recovery, he would set a strict schedule for working in the studio. That would be between 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. That's it. No other hours. Every other hour of the day must be dedicated to his family. This was essential. It was essential for his recovery. This frustrated the guys, and namely Lars. In a meeting at Metallica HQ in San Francisco, the guys talk out their frustrations. Look, guys, it's really important that we stick to the 12 to 4 schedule. When we agree to something, I expect all of us to stick with it. I don't want us to work on anything after 4 p.m., This is part of the process. Uh, James, look, I find it hard. I find it hard for us to adhere to the 12 to 4 rule when you always show up at 12.45. Oh, that's rich coming from you, Lars. The room is stunned at James's response. James snapped back at Lars in front of everyone. Bob Rock asks James what he meant. I've known Lars for 20 years. I've never once heard him say he was sorry for being late. And I tell you right now, I'm not about to start. There was obviously a lot of tension between both guys. 20 years isn't a short period of time. And in many ways, it's a marriage. Lars and James had to sort their shit out in order to move forward as a unit. They needed to clear the air. Lars continues... James, I find it really selfish that we have to adhere to the rules you put in place. Look, you don't give a shit about what we think. And, ub, uh, 
we only abide by them so we don't piss you off. This is really f- frustrating, dude. You don't care about how I feel. You don't care about how any of us feel. You just care about your own point of view. It was tense in the room, but it was necessary. Lars and James needed to hash this stuff out. They had to confront the uncomfortable things they felt about each other. These type of confrontations would continue, but it was important. It was important for them to heal. This would go on through 2001, 2002, and early 2003. During this time, longtime band producer Bob Rock would be involved in many ways. First, he would be partaking in the counseling sessions and would be very much part of the healing process. Second, he would take on the production duties as he had in the past 12 years. And third, and most importantly, Bob becomes the de facto bass player of Metallica during this time. Metallica's new trial of writing would eventually produce a dozen tracks, 11 of which would make it onto their latest album. At one point, the band got into a meeting and informed Kirk Hammett that they would not be including any guitar solos on this album. Guitar solos, Kirk Hammett's signature sound, and an element of every Metallica album that would be discontinued from this album. That was crazy. Kirk protested at first, but in order for them to heal, they really had to check their egos. So Kirk eventually played ball and agreed to ditch the solos at the request of the group. The band was healing. Egos were thrown out of the window, relationships were mending, positivity was at the core of what they were trying to do. Ultimately, Metallica wrapped up the album and the filming and started planning how to reintroduce themselves to the world. Luckily, the first signs of interest came from MTV. Metallica would get a call from the music broadcaster to tell them they've been selected to be featured on MTV's Icon Show, a show that highlights a legendary rock band for a full hour-long ceremony which features star-studded performances from their peers in the industry. This was great. Metallica's image was mending and it couldn't have come at a better time, on the cusp of the release of their latest album, Saint Anger. But before any of that, Metallica had to go through something they went through almost 15 years earlier. Hold auditions for a new bass player. And it was on. But this time, and after going through a life-changing process, Metallica were not simply looking for a guy who rocks. They were also looking for a full-on family member to complement their new dynamic. There was no hazing this time there will be full respect and the new bass player would be welcomed with open arms, a stark difference from their younger selves 15 years earlier. They were the biggest metal band in the world, so whoever fills Jason Newsted's shoes had a lot of pressure on their shoulders. Bass players like Twiggy Ramirez of Marilyn Manson, Mike Inez from Addison Chains, and Pepper Keenan from Corrosion of Conformity tried out for Metallica. However, there was one man that would walk into that jam room that would blow the guys away. His name was Robert Trujillo. He was the bassist of legendary rock icon Ozzy Osbourne. Trujillo is a veteran bass player who played with notable bands like Suicidal Tendencies and funk legends Infectious Grooves. One day prior to his audition, 
Lars Ulrich and Kirk Hammett would invite Rob Trujillo out for drinks to smoothen his nerves just before the big day. They hung out, they laughed, and Rob, well, he got pretty drunk. This wasn't great for him, because the next day, he had a pretty bad hangover. The following morning, Rob Trujillo puts on his casual pink shirt, jeans, and packs his base. He walks into Heavy Metal's most powerful building, Metallica HQ. Unfortunately, he had a pounding headache from the night before. Lars, Kirk, James, and Bob Rock were all there waiting to greet him. He put on a smile, said his hello, and went into the jam room to start setting up. He was sweating. This was, after all, the biggest audition of his life. If he gets this, he would be part of the biggest heavy metal band in history. Suddenly, Rob runs out looking for the bathroom. He rushes in to wash his face. He'd look at himself in the mirror and say, Oh man, oh, you've got you've to hang in there. You've got to hang in there, Rob. Oh God, oh God, I can't do this right now. Oh God, I, I don't feel too good. I don't feel too good. I, I, really, I really can't do this. No, 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 no. You can, you can, you can, Rob. You got this. You got this. Rob picked himself up, walked into the jam room again, but this time the boys were in. James plugged in his guitar, looks at him and says, So, what are we playing? Battery, answers Rob with no hesitation. Right on. Let's do this. The four guys went on to play an explosive rendition of Battery, which blew everyone away. Rob was relieved. He did all that he could with all the energy that he had. The moment he walked out, the guys all knew that they had found their guy. Funnily enough, Lars thought, if Cliff was here today, he probably wouldn't have been the guy. The next day, Metallica invites Rob back into the studio, and to his surprise, he gets the gig. Crazy! They even offered him $1 million right off the bat as a gesture of goodwill. In the studio, the boys make the pitch. Uh, we're really, we're really honored to have you here with us, man. It's been a long 22 months since Jason has left, and I have to say, it's been a long journey for us too, to be here, um, to be alive, together, and well, to be here with you and who we are as human beings. We want you to be a part of this, man. We want you to be a part of Metallica. Yeah, we want this to be our reality, man. We want you to be part of this family. And we would be honored to have you be part of Metallica. Rob is stunned, speechless. He literally has nothing to say. But he was now part of the biggest heavy metal band in history. And with that, Metallica were a unit once more. James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, Kirk Hammett, and Rob Trujillo, the kings of heavy music, are back. Metallica made their first public appearance at the MTV Icon Show a few months later, where the band were met with the thunderous applause and fanfare. The guest list featured some of the biggest names in rock music, including Fred Durst of Limp Bizkit, who just a few years earlier sided with Napster against the band. The show went flawlessly and the boys felt on top of the world. The boys got on stage to play a brand new song called Frantic. This was the first taste of Metallica's new music to the world. Soon after, Metallica announced that they would finally get on tour after a long hiatus. But this time they were planning the biggest tour of the summer, featuring Linkin Park, Limp Bizkit and Deftones. Some of the biggest names in new metal at the time. 
on June 5th, 2003, and after years of therapy and rebuilding, Metallica released their highly anticipated full-length album of new songs, the first since 1997's Reload, Saint Anger. It exploded. Saint Anger topped the charts in 14 countries in its first week of release, went on to sell 6 million copies globally, and put Metallica right back in the center of the music world. The fan reception, however, was a little mixed. The album production was a controversial point amongst fans and critics alike. The album's sound was stripped back and raw. Coupled with the lack of guitar solos, the fans were divided. On the one hand, there was a sense of appreciation that metal made it back to the limelight. Longer songs, faster drumming, and heavier riffs filled the album. But on the other, many could not get past the production and the lack of solos. However, in many ways, Metallica's return paved the way for a new movement of heavy metal bands to start popping up again. With Metallica back and more relevant than ever, the zeitgeist of heavy metal was at an all-time high. Many bands like Killswitch Engage, Shadows Fall, Lamb of God, and Machine Head were starting to get recognition and more opportunities. Metallica headed to Europe for their first leg of their tour only to be greeted by hundreds of thousands of die-hard fans across the continent. The band also filled their set lists with classics from their 80s era, marking a return to form that many had hoped for. The band was also playing better than ever. They got on phenomenally well and they were back on top of the world. In late 2004, Metallica finally released the documentary they had filmed at the Sundance Film Festival. The documentary was called Some Kind of Monster. The portrayal of the band was real, it was raw, and in many ways, it was brave. Even the members of Metallica felt uncomfortable watching it at first. They put themselves up on the screen in a two-hour movie that showed the grueling time they went through in order to heal and ultimately write new music together. It highlighted James Hetfield's journey to sobriety and the complex relationships within the band dynamic. The documentary was received to critical acclaim. Entertainment Weekly said, it was an unprecedented, caught-on-the-fly look at the creative fire, arduous labor, and thorny power dynamics that drive a veteran band. It's been an insane ride. From highly publicized therapy sessions, writing an album collaboratively, releasing a movie, Metallica went from almost losing themselves entirely to being totally reborn as a band. Things were good, but it was time to move on from this phase. It's early 2006. The members of Metallica have been mulling over an important decision. You see, after the successful release of Saint Anger, Some Kind of Monster, and a subsequent world tour, the guys wanted to ride on this momentum and double down on going back to their metal roots. For them to do this, they had to take some decisions that would put them firmly on that path. So they call for a meeting with longtime producer and friend Bob Rock. Guys, a meeting at the studio, huh? What's up? What's so urgent? Lars? Look, Bob, you know we love you, and you've been instrumental to our growth. You're more than a producer or a partner. You've been a friend. Uh-huh. But I think we need to go a different way with Metallica. I think it's time for us to explore new producers 
for this upcoming album. Whoa, okay, okay um, yeah, I, I kind of sensed you were headed in that path. You're right, Lars, we had a good run, but maybe it's time you guys go and explore something else, see what else is out there. And the band knew exactly who they wanted to work with. It was superstar producer Rick Rubin, a thick-bearded musical guru. Rick had been making a name for himself by producing some of the biggest bands on the planet. Bands like Red Hot Chili Peppers, Rage Against the Machine, Slayer, and even rapper Jay-Z. He's been credited by numerous bands by helping them create some of the best albums of their careers. Rick was drastically different to Bob Rock. Bob Rock was very involved in the process and would even chime in with his own musical ideas. Whereas Rick, Rick was extremely hands-off. In fact, he barely showed up to the studio. His approach was to help the band build a mindset and then get them to write an album with that mindset. He would then review the songs and tell the guys what sounds good and what needed to be cancelled. It was that simple. Metallica wanted to be challenged, so Rick Rubin was their guy. At their first meeting, James and Lars went for an early breakfast with Rick Rubin in downtown San Francisco. He knew exactly what he wanted the boys to do. Guys, look, it's simple. I want you to remember 1985. Step back into that year and get into that mindset. What was it like writing Master of Puppets? What was the hunger like? Who were your influences? I need you to channel that. Channel who you were and how you came up with those crushing songs. Um, that's cool, Rick. All right, so how do we do this? Would you be coming in daily, or how does that work? <laughs> no, Lars, no, I don't do that. I'll just tell you what sounds good and what doesn't. You're going to write a set list. Your next album is going to be a set list of your best songs, and you're going to try to go ahead and get signed and do a showcase to impress people. That is the mindset. Now go write these songs and come back to me in a few weeks. And surely, that's how it worked. Metallica would put themselves into that mindset and go back to write songs on their own with no producer holding their hand or telling them what works and what doesn't. The boys respected this. They wanted to feel like the grittier and younger version of themselves. Rick Rubin even pushed them to stand up while they're playing, just like they do when they play live. Metallica wrote and wrote, and then they would show Rick the songs. He would give them the thumbs up on a couple of songs, and then he would trash the rest. Go write more of these, he says. They even went back to their older way of writing. James and Lars drove, and the rest came later. 1985 also meant guitar solos, and lots and lots of them. So with blistering fast drums, ferocious riffing, and angry vocals, Metallica were writing the heaviest and fastest album they put out since the 80s. They were happy with this direction, it spoke to who they were as a band, and they couldn't wait to share it with the world. In the studio, Rick speaks to the guys. It's sounding great, boys. What are you going to call this one? Death Magnetic. It's kind of a tribute to people that have fallen in rock and roll. People like Lane Staley of Alice in Chains. And a lot of the people who have died, basically. And then it kind of grew from there, thinking about death, how some people are drawn towards it, and others, just like a magnet, push it away. And with that, on September 12th, 2008, Death Magnetic, the first thrash album from Metallica since 1988, 
was released. It sold over 490,000 copies in its first three days alone, landing on the number one slot of the Billboard charts. Metallica even used the classic logo once again, giving a real nod to their past. They took these songs out on tour and headlined every major festival on the planet. They played to hundreds of thousands of people around the world during the Death Magnetic Tour. Things were good in Metallica camp. Only eight years earlier, the band was on the brink of collapse and their image tarnished. Today, things feel better, it felt all right, but things were about to go to a whole new level. You see, in early 2009, the band had been together for 25 years. On a rainy day in January, the band gets an amazing call from their management team. Cliff Bernstein, Metallica's manager, breaks the news. Guys, are you sitting down for this? You have been nominated to enter the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's right. Metallica have been recognized to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, an honor reserved for a few, and Metallica were one of the bands considered for it. Surely enough, on April 4, 2009, the guys from Metallica were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in a live televised broadcast in front of hundreds of thousands of viewers around the world. There was a sense of disbelief from the boys. Here they were, the young, blonde, pimple-faced kid called James, the young Danish boy with a dream called Lars, the same guys who called each other 25 years ago, were standing in front of a packed theater in their honor, accepting to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Kirk Hammett, who scrapped all the money that he could get so he could go and fly out to audition for Metallica, looked out at the audience with teary eyes. Even Jason Newsted rejoined his brothers for this. He was just a fan who wanted to join them 20 years earlier. And today, here he was, being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Robert Trujillo, who joined them six years earlier, couldn't believe that he was part of this experience. But most importantly, Ray Burton, the father of late Metallica bass player Cliff Burton, was there to accept the honor on his son's behalf, 20 years after he passed. Uh, hello? Yeah, hi. Uh, how can I help you? Um, I want to place an ad in the paper, please. Sure. What do you want to say, young man? Hmm. Okay, write this. Drummer looking for other metal musicians to jam with. Tigers of Pangtang, Diamond Head, and Iron Maiden. Hello? Yeah, hi. I saw this ad in the paper. Um, you a guitar player? Yeah, I'd like to jam some Maiden tunes if you're up for it. Um, sure, yeah, let's do it. Cliff, where are you? Cliff. Where are you? 
Hey, I'm Jason. I'm here for the bass auditions. Uh, hey, Jason, come on in. I'm Lars. Uh, nice to meet you guys. I'm a big fan. So, um, this is James. This is Kirk. Uh, what do you want to play, man? Well, most of them really. Here's a list of the songs you've been playing on this tour. Here they were, standing in front of a packed theater in their honor, accepting to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This was the highest honor they could receive. All the awards, all the accolades, nothing measured up to this. Once they were called up to the stage to receive this honor, Lars looked out at the audience. It was different this time. He remembered. At that moment, he was taken back. He remembered his younger self just 25 years earlier when he saw Deep Purple for the first time with his dad. He was now on that stage accepting an honor that was unlike anything else. He walks up to that microphone and says, This is all about you guys, the fans. I hope you know that. Rock and roll is truly about possibilities that can come true and about dreams that can facilitate themselves. And anything is possible if you just have the guts to believe it. Metallica is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Can you believe it? The audience cheers and goes wild. James Hetfield looks at the crowd and then looks down. He shakes his head in disbelief. It is truly unbelievable to him. He walks up to the mic after Lars and says, I dedicate this to young musicians out there who are the next generation of music. And also, I would like to dedicate this to quite the opposite, to those who are stuck in an image, those who are afraid to be honest and dream a big dream. We are living proof that you can make your dreams come true. James then looks back at Lars with a huge grin. Lars looks back with even a bigger one. James turns back to the mic and says, And lastly, and most importantly here, I want to thank Lars. I want to thank Lars for calling me, so we can include each other in our dreams in being in the greatest heavy metal band in world history. The crowd goes wild. Cheers, applause, and tears. James walks up to Lars and gives him a hug. A hug witnessed by the fans, by the industry, and most importantly, by the band's families. Despite everything, Lars and James are brothers. 25 years of being in a roller coaster of adventures experiences and emotions. Metallica endured it all and managed to come out on top. A band that touched millions of people around the world, sold over 125 million albums throughout every corner of this earth and played to countless human beings. It is nothing short of inspiring when we think of the Metallica story. From being 17-year-old kids who barely made ends meet to becoming the biggest metal band on earth, 
Their story extends beyond that of a great rock band. It is a story of determination, endurance, and ultimately, triumph. Metallica continue to release albums and tour, and have recently celebrated almost 40 years together. They still pack the biggest stadiums on earth, sell millions of copies with every new release, and dare to go places no other band goes. And even though their story isn't over, we find it fitting to end ours here. So from the Rising Giants Network, this was Season 1 of Legendary Rock Stories. We will see you next time with a brand new story from another legendary band. Thank you and take care. Legendary Rock Stories is a Rising Giants Network production. Written and narrated by myself, Basil Anatawi. Sound design and audio engineering by Bashar Najjar. Produced by the Rising Giants Network at BKP Studios. We have researched this show to the best of our abilities. Some of the dialogue may have been enhanced to bring you closer to the story. All sourcing can be found in our website or in our show notes. Make sure you subscribe to the Legendary Rock Stories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can check out all of our upcoming shows on risinggiantsnetwork.com. Until next time, take care, and we'll see you on our next episode. And finally, we would like to give a shout-out to Milton Kivernides for being the voice behind our sonic intros. <laughs>